Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It is Saturday evening around 9.30. I am in Los Angeles in my office. It looks like New York outside the window. is beautiful here. I am coming to you to deliver you what I said I was going to deliver to you, which was part two of two of the greatest inspirational and holy shit moments of our two-year anniversary here at Industry Standard. And I'm really, really happy, really excited to deliver these messages from these great people to you. And before I get started, I just want to thank you again. I know I'm always like a broken record telling you how grateful I am and how appreciative I am of all of your cards and FedExes and tweets and and emails, and it's just beyond words of how supportive you've all been. And without you, there is no show. And I can guarantee you that. It really blows me away, and and it makes me want to do so much more for you in the coming year. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make that happen. I also want to thank a lot of you for going to my website, barrycats.com slash podcast and clicking on the Amazon banner at the top and buying whatever kinds of plethora of stuff you buy with the knowledge that it doesn't cost you anything and it helps benefit the Barry Cats Jewish Boy College Fund. 
a circumcision is a terrible thing to waste. That's awful. I'm so sorry. As I go on to this episode, I just want to say a few words of thanks to all the people throughout the past two years that have worked so hard on the show. It's incredible. From Alec Thomas, who did the openings, to the great voiceovers that we have on the show, to all the producers that have worked in the show. You all know who you are up until this year's podcast producers, Max Mollian and Kevin Terrell. It's just, it's been so great. And a lot of the assistants that have worked here and the interns, especially uh, in the past few months, Anna Barnes has done a great job working on the podcast. I'm very, very grateful about that. But as I get started here, I think last week I told a cold open that I never told before, and I thought I'd flip the switch a little bit, and I sort of went over all of the cold opens that I had done, and I thought, why not go back to my very, very first episode with Doug Herzog? I mean, I was a little bit nervous, I was a little bit anxious, which I tell people, don't be anxious, anxious and nervousness don't go together with a success. But I thought, you know, I'm playing it and I'm listening to my voice. It's, you know, I'm sort of shaking like a car on bad gas in front of a guy who's the president of like seven networks. And, but the story was funny. Probably the shortest cold open I ever did. Probably two minutes long. So that would be thrilling for everybody knowing that they've sat through so many of my cold opens that have been the length of war and peace. So... Without further ado, I think it would be important to share this cold open with you if you haven't heard it already. It involves a client that I've been working with for over 25 years, Jay Moore, who inspired me to do this podcast and who I'm very proud to say his album Happy and a Lot cracked the top 10 on the iTunes comedy chart after only 24 hours. So God knows where that's going to go. The sky's the limit. And this story is about him, a show that I produced with him, and Don Rio, the late Chris Thompson, the late Ted Demi. And without spoiling it, suffice to say, it's about a phone call that we got from Doug Herzog and how it played out. I think you'll enjoy it. So here you go. I believe it was 1999, uh, possibly the end of 1999. Um, we're in the middle of production of a little show called Action that Doug Herzog greenlit while he was at Fox. As the story goes, he had two calls he had to make that day. He had to make a call to Chris Carter to cancel his science fiction series. And he had to make a call to Jay and I to cancel Action because the ratings at the time were getting about 8 million people, and back then 8 million people was not very good. So I get the call. I connect Jay on the call. I don't know what's going to happen on the call, and Doug says, listen, I'm sorry to tell you guys. Listen, I, I have to cancel the show action. Jay Moore goes ballistic on the phone. He's like, Doug, come on, man. 
You got us on Thursday night after this cartoon Family Guy that you put on. What are you doing, putting on Family Guy on Thursday night, and we have to follow that? We're a live-action show. Why don't you put us on on Tuesday nights after that 70s show? And Doug replied, Jay, Jay, I can't do that. That 70s show, that's, that's a family show. I can't do that. It's a family show. Jay's like, what the fuck are you talking about a family show? Uh, the other night I saw, I saw the whole group of people around the kitchen table eating hash pot brownies. And Doug yelled back into the phone, yes, Jay, but they were doing it as a family. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Card. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited today. It is the second anniversary show, part two of two, featuring a plethora, probably over 30 of the greatest inspirational stories and holy shit moments from some of the most extraordinary executives, presidents, directors, writers, producers, and comedians of our time. Without further ado, I'd like to open this special episode up with probably one of the most special and unique podcasts I ever did is with a client of mine, Jay Moore, who I'm honored to have represented 25 years and is a guy who's proven he can do anything. He does major motion pictures with huge stars. He's worked with over, I think, 15 Academy Award winning actors and actresses. He's done over 300 episodes of television. He's done probably over 20 Tonight Shows and God knows how many episodic series. He has had his own series he has his own radio show that's syndicated in 150 markets. And he's hosted the show Last Comic Standing that was nominated for an Emmy Award, which he created, which is now in its ninth season. But as you're about to hear, he's also a guy who can do more than everything. Well, you'll sort of get what I mean when you listen to this clip. So without further ado, please welcome Jay Moore, sort of. Welcome to Industry Standard, the podcast that debuted at number three on the iTunes charts and has held steady in the top 400 ever since. <laughs> My name is Barry Katz. This is a very, very special episode of Industry Standard. Uh, we've had a lot of great guests on the show trying to bring you uh, a peek behind the curtain of what happens in Hollywood. And uh, today we're going to break form because it's a dual podcast, a double entendre sort of uh, podcast being the uh, egomaniac that I am. I decided why not have me interview me? Usually, as you guys may or may not know, we begin the podcast with six degrees of separation. So without any further ado... I first met me 
In Longmeadow, Massachusetts, I was born a poor black child named Navin Johnson. And uh, sorry, that was Steve Martin in The Jerk. I apologize. I'm getting my, I'm getting my stars mixed up. When I first met me, it was in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And uh, I always knew there was something out there bigger than myself. I always knew there was a better calling for me than uh, doing the work that people in my neighborhood, people in my town did, digging ditches, working at the post office. I knew from a very young age of watching Jonathan Winters, people like uh, the 2,000-year-old man sketches from Mel Brooks and watching all Woody Allen specials and listening to Lenny Bruce. I knew that was my calling. And I also knew me when I was a teen, and I studied stand-up comedy religiously. It was important to me. It was the oxygen in my lungs. It was the blood that ran through my veins. I woke up every day wishing and hoping against hope that one day I could be one of those people, try to be a, a fraction of as brilliant as these people that I watched. So... There's that great old expression, those who can do, those who can't teach, those who can't teach, manage. <laughs> My next guest is a guy who has produced movies that have made over $2 billion. It's unbelievable what this guy has done. His string of comedy hit movies produced through his company, Apatow Productions, has not stopped since they launched the careers of some of the biggest stars in the world today. Movies like Knocked Up, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Talladega Nights, Pineapple Express, Superbad, Funny People, This Is 40, Bridesmaids, and his latest movie, Trainwreck. His book Sick in the Head is available on Amazon, and this is a guy who's an iconic director and producer and writer and it was an honor to have him as the man who was featured in my 100th episode. Please welcome Judd Apatow. I mean, I think one of the great privileges I've had has been to produce a few of the Will Ferrell, Adam McKay collaborations. I, you know, I'm very nervous as a director, and I'm probably pretending to be in a good mood <laughs> and failing most of the time. Uh, but those guys, you know, they write those movies and Adam directs. They're having the best time. They're laughing their asses off. They really are taking an enormous pleasure from the experience. There's very little stress compared to other movies. And every time I get the chance to work with them, it just changes my mood for my own work. Like, oh, you're supposed to enjoy this. Oh, there's <laughs> this is about also this experience and... Uh, it, it, it really changes me being around them. Uh, and and they're just, I, I don't think anyone's ever been as funny as those two guys. It's incredible. It, it, I mean, it really is remarkable to watch. And one of the great treats for me as a comedy nerd, because I'm really just a comedy nerd who wants to get around it all. I mean, I feel like I'm a comedian and an artist only so I'm able to sit on the set and watch Will and Adam work on a scene. So, you know, Sometimes you're on the set and and none of it gets in the movie, but you got to watch basically the modern version of the Marx Brothers workout bits and they might do 10 takes and maybe the scene gets cut and you got to watch Will and Adam explore something ridiculous. There's a, there was a scene in the Anchorman 2 where Paul Rudd punches Will Ferrell 
and they were just working out what is the what is Ron Burgundy's reaction to getting punched really hard. And Adam says, "Why didn't you do one where after you get punched, you just talk about how it doesn't hurt because you're a man, and just list the reasons why <laughs> you know you're a man, and then slowly start to cry." <laughs> And then Will goes for like three minutes. It was one of my favorite things I've ever witnessed, you know, was Will running that idea. And then they did another version, which was when he hits you. um, you I mean, there was one version where it was like he hits you back into fifth grade. And and he just starts, you know, going, my pee-pee. And just like... And they, but they would run like five major concepts. Like after he hits you, it's like you don't speak English. <laughs> he hits you so hard, and you, you know that's the you know the gift of being in the business is oh I got to see that no one got to see that. My next guest is a guy who is such a wonderful, wonderful person <laughs> to be around. He's best known as the creator, writer, and executive producer for one of the greatest sitcoms of all time. Everybody loves Raymond. He's a guy who did his first feature film for Sony Pictures, Exporting Raymond, which he wrote and directed, which is the true story about the attempt to turn Everybody Loves Raymond into a successful Russian sitcom. He also occasionally accepts acting gigs, including memorable parts in films like Spanglish, The Simpsons Movie, as well as a notable appearance in Curb Your Enthusiasm and 30 Rock. Check out his new cooking show on PBS where he travels all over the world. But most importantly, this man is something very, very special. I mean, how many guys have a movie night at their house every Sunday? I know you're going to like him a lot. Please welcome Phil Rosenthal. I actually did something horrible to Les Moonves. I did not thank him personally at the Emmys twice. Twice, because um, I'm a. You're the Hillary Swank of executive producers. I'm a fucking idiot, is what I am. I owe everything to this guy, and I was so nervous both times I got up at the show. Uh, if you're if you're lucky enough to win an Emmy award, it, when you or an Oscar or anything, and you go up on stage in front of a billion people. You look out at the audience and all you see is a 20-foot screen that's flashing, get off the stage, Jew. <laughs> that ri- Literally, wrap it up is what they're saying. The moment you start. So my job is to say something semi-funny and run off stage. And I, as soon as I left that first time, I was reminded, uh, you didn't thank Les. Well, I thanked everyone at CBS. You didn't thank Les. You're right. Oh, my God. I went over to his table at the governor's ball or whatever and, uh, you know, thanked him profusely for everything. Uh, he was fine about it. But then I did it again because two years later, we didn't think we were going to win. It was now our last year. We, we had half a season in that last season. Uh, and and we knew that Desperate Housewives was going to win. It was their first year. And uh, that's what all the buzz was about. And then we won. And I was shocked. I'd prepared nothing. I was already drunk. <laughs> and, and and we go up there and thank the audience. And as I'm leaving, hey, putz, <laughs> you didn't thank him again. What'd you say to him at the governor's ball that year? Please don't kill me. <laughs> and what did he say? I'll think about it. <laughs> I know you're going to like this next guest. She's currently the president of MTV Network. And she's an award-winning entertainment executive who's also consulted for the Oprah Winfrey Network. 
was the president of Lifetime through its unprecedented run of rating successes, including their number one drama, Army Wives, and the redevelopment of the hit Project Runway. Most importantly, she was the president of the WB, now the CW, where she embarked on an incredible run of culture-defining hits, including Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Dawson's Creek, Felicity, Angel, Smallville, Gilmore Girls, Seventh Heaven, and Charmed. I know you're going to like her a lot. She is one of the most special people in our business. Please welcome Suzanne Daniels. I didn't really know what a general was. <laughs> a general is always an interview, but I didn't know that. And I thought a general just meant, um, we'll just chit-chat, but there's no job. But there always could be a job. And you have to treat every meeting like it could be a potential interview. So but true. I, but I didn't. I completely blew it. And I just went in there talking about what I like, which wasn't the news. And the, at the end of the, the meeting, the guy said to me, well, I would never hire you. You don't want to eat, drink, and sleep the news. I only want to hire people who want to eat, drink, and sleep the news. And I thought, well, I've blown it once again. <laughs> Good work, Suzanne. <laughs> um, but then he opened the door that changed my life. I mean, I know that sounds dramatic, but he did. Then he paused and he said, I heard Lord Michaels is looking for an assistant. Would you want me to give your resume to him? I literally almost fell off my chair because there had been a book written about Saturday Night Live, which I had read. Now there's more than one. Now there's multiple books. But at the time, I think there just was one. And I had read it and I knew who Lauren was and I loved Saturday Night Live. And I thought, oh, my God. And I said, yes, I want to, <laughs> you know, please, would you do that? Really? That's the most incredible offer ever. And he sent my resume over and Lauren agreed to interview me. And Lauren kept me waiting for the interview for, God, it was at least two hours. It might have been three hours. And there's a conference room right outside of his office. So I sat in that conference room, which was fascinating and kind of scary and intimidating all at the same time because during those two or three hours, it was a working week. You know, stars of the show were coming in and out to meet him, Al Franken and Kevin Nealon and Dana Carvey and you know, knocking on his door. And so, I mean, I, on the one hand, I didn't mind waiting because it was just just fascinating place to be. But on the other hand, I was getting more and more and more nervous. I was working, you know, working myself up into quite a tizzy. <laughs> I do remember telling him how enthusiastic I was, you know, about the opportunity and how much it would mean to me and how I couldn't think of any better job to do. It was, would be a dream come true. And uh, so I was I had I had moved home after college. So I was living with my folks. And uh, it was a few days later that they called me. I was on my parents couch watching Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> and the phone rang and uh, and they told me I got the job. My next guest is an incredibly talented stand up comedian and actor. And when I get together with this guy, I can't control myself in terms of laughter I just can't he is one of the funniest people that I've ever met in my entire life you probably know him from his appearances on Late Show with David Letterman or his groundbreaking show which he starred in and executive produced Insomniac but he's also been a part of big shows for Comedy Central like Comedy Underground or for Showtime Dave's Old Porn He's been seen as an actor in such respected film and television projects like Louie, the movie Funny People, and most recently seen in Trainwreck with Amy Schumer. This particular thing that happened in my interview isn't the norm. It's not a story. 
it's not inspirational. But to me, when you're doing an interview and somebody walks through from the bathroom, well, sometimes if you are this man who I'm interviewing, it can become a holy shit moment probably every time. Please welcome Dave Attell. You know, part of the show is not only talking about the industry, but breaking new talent. And here we have a guy all the way in from Oklahoma, just out of the bathroom. Sir, go ahead. My hands are clean, so you don't have to worry about the mic. Face face the camera, sir, please. Where's the camera? Right there. There you go. I this goes right to last comic standing. Honestly. Okay, this is fast. Tourist pulls into a reservation gas station. And he asked the uh, fellow working at the pump, he says, hey, what's the quickest way to get to Oklahoma City? Indian looks at him, he says, are you driving or are you walking? <laughs> he says, well, obviously I'm driving. He says, that's the quickest way. Oh, there you go. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> Thank you so we'll much. We'll get in touch. <laughs> Up, upstairs, treat yourself to a... Well, I'm going to say is that gentleman who came on um, very funny, but good luck getting him signing a release. <laughs> Bad history with the white man paper. <laughs> My next guest defines huggable and lovable, and throughout his presidency at Turner Entertainment Networks, where he oversees the programming, marketing, scheduling, strategy, and operations for four of the cable's strongest brands, TNT, TBS, True TV, and Turner Classic Movies. He proved that out every single time. Along the way, TV Guide featured him in its power list and Entertainment Weekly named him one of the smartest people in television. The story he's about to tell is when he worked for the Coca-Cola company and his, well, what he thought was a brilliant idea maybe didn't turn out that way. This man is so much fun and just a great guy to be around. Please welcome Steve Coonan. One of the things that I'm constantly ridiculed for is I had this idea for, you know, we, we were living in this incredible time where it was literally going to change millenniums, turn from 19, you know, 19, the 20th century to the 21st century. So I came up with a really big idea that on New Year's Eve 1999, People would look up in the sky at the moon, and we would have Coca-Cola advertising on the moon. Wow. And so I was reading an article one day, and, and I'm a voracious reader and use that for a lot of connections. And a University of El Paso, Texas El Paso professor had an article that said the moon had moved six inches closer to Earth. And so my first inclination <laughs> is, is there a tape measure long enough? I'd really <laughs> like to see that tape measure. And, and there wasn't. So... I called the guy, you know, and I said, how do you know? He said, well, we shoot a laser up there and we measure the refraction back and we track that. And I said, so when you shoot the laser up there, can you see the laser hitting the surface of the moon? He said, yeah, with a telescope we can. I said, so if we built a ton of lasers, could we build a pattern? Could we create a gobo? Exactly. A gobo on the moon. A gobo, for those of you who don't know about uh, live performances when you go to see Aerosmith or a comedian, Dane Cook or whatever, sometimes they'll have their logo uh, uh, built into the light, like Batman almost, the right. logo in the sky. Yeah, so it was going to be. So I went to the chairman of Coke, and he goes, I really like this idea. And he gave me several hundred thousand dollars to go investigate and made a deal with the university professor and we started building this whole plan that we were going to shock the world. <laughs> and um, we 
progressed fairly far till we had to go to the FAA and they said, are you out of your mind? You're going to create a laser field that will take every plane in the sky that passes through it and cut it in half. And I said, <laughs> well, just for an hour. You know? <laughs> I mean, how much damage could we really do? And so obviously that got shut down. And, and I'll never forget my, my daughter was 10, at, probably six or seven at the time. And she said, Dad, that's not a good idea. What if it was cloudy and you can't see the moon? <laughs> Damn, I never thought of clouds. <laughs> so, unfortunately, the chairman of Coke two years later did an interview with Forbes or Fortune talking about big ideas, and he brought up that one. And who knew the Internet would record your ideas forever? My next guest is a wonderful, wonderful woman who really, really took me when I interviewed her, she really had that kind of way about her that really made me feel like a million bucks and I could see how any actor under her guidance would feel safe and amazing and feeling like they make an impact in the world. She's best known as the writer and director of one of the most iconic unbelievably powerful movies that I've ever seen with Academy Award winner Charlize Theron called Monster. Please welcome somebody who I always want to be in a room with, Patty Jenkins. I have the funniest memory of the premiere because every I had my moments in the editing where it's like when I edited certain scenes, I was like, woof, I love it. This is the, sometimes those moments in the editing room are the moments you've waited for. I've waited for my whole life where I put music to it and I cut it and it, it makes me cry every time I see it. And I'm like, I did it. I don't know whether it, what it will be to other people, but that made me feel what I wanted to feel. By the time you're done with the movie, you're like, it's this is what I'm saying, like the champagne moment never comes. It's like one problem after another. And the funniest story is Steve Perry had, uh, in the process of getting the song Don't Stop Believing, became literally my best friend at that time and still <laughs> one of my best friends because he gave, stopped everything, came out of seclusion and finished the film with me for four months every day to the point of like, I was having moments where I was really losing it with different things. And he would like drive me to a musician's house and record music to put in the thing. And like he made it, he pushed me, helped me go across the finish line. So I'll always remember sitting in the premiere of Monster. Um, and Steve was sitting next to me. And the entire time we were like, God damn it, the fucking crickets got, how did we told them, bring the sound down on the crickets. So the crickets are back. <laughs> and so the entire time you're like perseverating over you you you're you're left at the last stop which was the last stop you were on was the sound mix and you're like did you hear the subwoofers they're totally high not in the center channel the voice is in the wrong place that was my entire the whole time steve and i were like this is ridiculous like and then you've forgotten that other people were like oh my god charlize is eileen warnish you're like what oh yeah no that was so last year we're like over that part we've moved on to something else but yeah so i feel like i but i will tell you this I hope I, I hope that this happens to me many times in my life. But what was wonderful about that movie was I knew that I was happy with it, which then buffers you so much from so many things because you're like, I don't know, you can like it or you can not like it. That's the movie that I, that's the movie I wanted to make. My next guest probably needs no introduction in the business. Um, he is what I would like to call a championship executive. 
who successfully covers the spectrum of sports, film, and television like no one else in the world. In television, he's the recipient of the Lifetime Award for the produce, from the Producers Guild of America. And over the years, he and his partners have garnered 24 Emmys, 11 People's Choice Awards, and too many Golden Globe, Humanitas, and Peabody honors to count. He discovered such iconic stars as Robin Williams, Danny DeVito, Andy Kaufman, Tom Hanks, Billy Crystal, and Roseanne, just to name a few, and helped develop such hit series as Soap, Mork and Mindy, The Cosby Show, A Different World, Roseanne, Third Rock from the Sun, Sybil, and That 70s Show. Years later, he joined forces with Geraldine Laybourne and Oprah Winfrey to start The Oxygen Network. In sports, he is the chairman of the Red Sox and has led them with his partners through three championships in 10 years after a drought of over 86 years. The stories that this guy has are endless. His story, brilliant. This particular one revolves around the late Andy Kaufman and how a story became legendary from the great show Taxi. Please welcome Tom Werner. You know, the interesting thing about that show is that it started with Judd Hirsch, who we spent um, a lot of time trying to uh, lure into that show, and he was, he was wonderful. But the people that, in, retros- in retrospect, exploded in that show was... Danny DeVito, you mentioned Tony Danza, but uh, we had a holding deal with Andy Kaufman, and we put Andy Kaufman. We we brought Andy Kaufman just as we brought um, Tom Hanks to Paramount and Bosom Buddies. We had a deal with Andy Kaufman, who we had seen. I, you'd seen Andy, stand, um, and Andy was a brilliant, crazy. And, and similar and, to Robin, trying to figure out the right project right. for him to go. And when, when we made the deal with Andy Kaufman, I made it with Andy's agent, whose name was Tony Clifton. And Tony Clifton <laughs> was Andy Kaufman. But we actually negotiated for Andy's services with Tony Clifton. And part of the deal was that Tony Clifton had to have his own parking space at Paramount. So when we made the deal, so we, we never saw Tony's car because whenever we went to Paramount, his space was empty. But we, that was the deal we made with him. My next guest, you're going to enjoy a lot. She is the current executive vice president of programming and development at GSN, where she's developed numerous hits, including a great one, a hybrid game show called Idiot Test, hosted by Ben Glebe. She's had successful tenures at so many different networks, too many to count. But I will tell you this, that when she was at Bravo, she won four Emmy Awards, including one for Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and two for Kathy Griffin's My Life on the D-List, which she executive produced. She was responsible for developing the Real Housewives franchise, which has blown up in ways that you can't even imagine. I know this person is going to make an impact on you in this story. There was something about it that I really liked a lot, and it made me feel good inside. And it didn't really fit under maybe the holy shit moment, but it certainly fit under, to me, the inspirational moment. 
and how I would love to be for my kids. Please welcome Amy Introcaso Davis. I think it's got to be marching in the gay pride parade when queer eye for the straight guy launched because that, and we had, and we, it was actually right before we launched. So the promos were on the air. I brought my son with them with me. He was like 13 at the time. It's very, very controversial move in my family and with the guys actually. Um, but you know, just to see, what it meant to the gay community at that time was such, it was just such an amazing thing, such an amazing thing. Um, you know, and I will say that show I heard from every gay man in my life, you know, when we made that show and how, what it meant to them and what, you know, and reading those, reading emails from 17 year old kids who were coming out to their parents because they liked Carson or they liked Ted or they liked, you know, that they felt comfortable to be able to do that. You know, it was, it it really changed, it changed the way people think actually, you know, and you don't get those. Those are like, you know, once in a career, a moment. My next guest I've known my whole career and was one of the guys who started it all in stand-up comedy at 44th and 9th in Hell's Kitchen, New York. This guy has been privy to the greatest comedy legends in the world and has been a fly in the wall while developing some of the biggest, biggest stars you can ever imagine in our lifetime. Including... Richard Pryor, Billy Crystal, Lily Tomlin, Freddie Prinze, Andy Kaufman, Eddie Murphy, Tim Allen, Jay Leno, Chris Rock, Ellen DeGeneres, Jamie Foxx, Adam Sandler, and Dave Chappelle. The story he's about to tell (laughs) involves probably one of the greatest comedians of my generation, Jerry Seinfeld. I know you're going to like it a lot. Please welcome Bud Friedman. The first 10 years of the improv was a struggle. I knew day to day would I be there the next day. And which is what which is what business is all about. Well, yeah, but it was my first business too. No, I know. It's and just... yeah, but I uh, so anyway, I I I'm been very, you know, I got a reputation being cheap and I don't, you know, I don't care. But uh, I'm not anymore, you know. I finally acknowledge that I am. So you were not cheap. Run out of money. Yes, absolutely. Jimmy Walker was when he was starting out the club. He was working, making two hundred and fifty dollars a week as an engineer for WMCA Radio, and that was more money than I was making, if I was making anything in those days. Anyway, one so carried over even even out here when when we were doing well again. Jerry's came in with his mother. Jerry was going on. His mother came in with uh, who else to see him, and I said, you know, she's going to have to pay. <laughs> to this. Day, I rue those words that came out of my mouth. <laughs> and what happened? She paid. <laughs> no, look at Jerry, still a friend, you know. So, if somebody had said that to you about your mom, what would you have done? Uh, oh, I never forget it. I never forget. It. Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on, just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. If there's a harder working person in the entertainment business than this guy, well, tell me where they are. He's an extraordinary radio and television host, comedian, actor, and three-time New York Times best-selling author and the host of his own podcast, which goes five days a week and is always in the top five on iTunes. He holds the title of the Guinness World Book of Records most downloaded podcast, and he's well known as the co-host of the hit radio and MTV show Love Line, the co-creator and co-host of the groundbreaking series The Man Show, and as a contestant on Dancing with the Stars, as well as Celebrity Apprentice. Presently, you can see him on the hit TV show, Catch a Contractor. This guy's story and how he came to be is just one of the most amazing things you could ever imagine, from scraping paint off tile and not really feeling he had any skill sets at all in the business to being one of the top guys out there. Please welcome Adam Carolla. My moment was uh, a, a very pragmatic and, and simple moment in terms of, of comedy. Like, it was not like, you know, I have a gift and that gift needs to be shared or I, I'm an artist and I need to I need to take my craft and, and bring it to the people or hone my craft. I'd super uh, not I don't have low self-esteem. I have no self-esteem, which is in my mind, I just don't exist. So it's not like I'm a piece of shit. I'm more like nothing. It's not, I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, you're such an idiot. I'm just always like, who, who cares? Now, that doesn't mean I don't recognize what I'm good at. I'm not like, oh, you piece of shit. What are you doing? Oh, you should have never. I'm very realistic. That's the way I think. So what, what happened to me is I was about 22 or 23. I had my one-bedroom apartment in North Hollywood with my three roommates and you know, no air conditioning and fucking sleeping on a futon with another dude and driving a pickup truck with no insurance and, you know, going to my job site and having a shitty foreman and, you know, working out in the sun and just kind of digging ditches. And I sort of sat down and I went, Went, well, let's let's really give an honest appraisal. Let's really be honest here and try to figure out what we can salvage for for life here. I was sitting in my kitchen at my little dinette. There was a booth at a place called the Blah Blah Cafe, and they threw it in the back alley, and we stole it from the back alley, and we shoved it in our kitchen, and I built a little table, and I was just sitting in there. I was like, all right, you're good with your hands. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of hassle. 
And, you know, maybe if everything goes right, you can get yourself a little place in Simi Valley or Northridge and get a couple of roommates and charge them rent and put some sweat equity into it, you know, and fix it up while they're there and flip it one day and make 35K, you know. And it was like it was, it was that kind of I knew what that life was. And then I said, what else are you good at? You know, and, you know. Attorney and doctor and pharmacist and court stenographer, you know, that shit was all out the window. But I knew I was funny. Like that, that I knew. Like I, I, I would listen to Mark and Brian when I was driving in, you know, to do to Chatsworth to work in a work in the cabinet shop. And I would listen to him and I would go, oh, shit, I could do that. My next guest was the first entertainment attorney I ever had on the show and is one of the most highly respected ones out here in Hollywood. He's a senior partner in one of the nation's premier entertainment law firms, which currently has his name on the door. He represents actors, comedians, writers, producers, executives, new media ventures, and production entities in all aspects of the motion picture and television industries, as well as all media. He's famous for negotiating the largest deal ever for a TV actor, Ray Romano and Everybody Loves Raymond, putting together what became the highest-grossing independent English-language film of all time, Nia Vardalis's My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and negotiating the highest television writer-producer deal in television history with Mark Cherry and Desperate Housewives. This guy is a wonderful, wonderful person a really stealth, stealth lawyer, and just happens to be the brother of also one of the most powerful people in the business, Les Moonves. I wouldn't normally mention that, but this story that you're about to hear focuses on their relationship, and I think you're going to like it a lot. Please welcome Jonathan Moonves. So we're sitting in there in this giant office um and it's my brother and nancy tellum who's his right hand man um and debbie barrick who's had a business affairs as you said and you know when i approach negotiation for me it's not about throwing numbers back and forth it's about um it's about starts with knowledge you got to really know what you're talking about and we did a tremendous amount of research. So we didn't go in there, start talking about, you know, here's what so-and-so made. We want to make more. Or, you know, here's, here's a number that we came up with. It was about doing calculations to show without Raymond, CBS is not the number one network. Being the number one network means you get paid more money by advertisers, that Raymond had launched several other shows. Those shows are generating so much money for CBS. It's about what happens to the ratings before Raymond, what happens to the ratings for the show after Raymond, what happens to the late night numbers on Monday night, which is the night that, you know, and it's going through these pages and pages of, um, you know, research we had done, talking about the potential syndication value of the show, which CBS had distribution rights on. Some of it you know at the time, some of it you have to make, you know, estimates. But we came in with, with research, and we spent a fair amount of time 
going through it. And CBS did their research and came back to us in that meeting with their their numbers and their analysis of how much the show costs and how much money they bring in for advertising for that half hour. And, you know, we're going back and forth. Um, and eventually, at the end of it, we asked for our number. Uh, Which was? It was a record by far, um, more than anybody had ever been paid. My brother literally stood up and walked across his large office. Basically, this meeting's over. Get out of here. And uh, we ended up sitting for a little bit. But everybody else left the room. Nope. Nope. We all, the, all the five of us sat there with my brother walking across his, his, uh, to his desk area as opposed to the couch area. And I don't think he went to the jacuzzi. No, he doesn't have a jacuzzi. <laughs> and he, the actual joke I made to break that he started typing and it wasn't the most prolific typing. And I said, you know what? We'll compromise. I'll throw in a couple of typing lessons for less <laughs> as part of the deal. Um, that broke the tension. He came back and uh, we eventually, you know, we eventually got there and it, it set a record and it was, it was, you know, pretty sweet. But these types of negotiations, you know, I think of it as, as a very, a very high stakes game of chicken because both sides, the stakes are very high if you don't make a deal. But you have to convince, and I'm not just talking about this negotiation, but a good negotiation in general where you're really, you know, you're really pushing the envelope. You have to convince the other side in any negotiation where you want to really push it that you're willing to walk away. And in TV or features with shows that are ongoing or sequels to movies where there's no contract for that you need to come to a deal or no or neither side is going to make you know is a lot of money you're going to miss out and the key to that negotiation is having the other side believe either because it's real or because you have enough evidence for it that you will walk away and that this show will go away and um you know, that was that was a real possibility here. But it was also armed with, you have to understand, CBS didn't make a bad deal for CBS. CBS made millions and millions of dollars because we made that deal. So anybody that thinks they got hoodwinked or tricked or bullied into it is missing the point. We just made them make, a, you know, a few million dollars less than they wanted to make. We made it. Now, it did result in, you referenced Thanksgiving. It's funny you say that. My brother did call up my mother and tell her <laughs> that her son was an asshole. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> my next guest, I love being in a room with this guy. He is a multiple Emmy award-winning executive producer, best known for working closely with David Letterman for 15 years, from the early years of his NBC talker to being the executive producer of Late Show with David Letterman at CBS. He previously was a director for MTV and an associate director for Good Morning America. And since his time at Letterman, 
Morty, as we call him, has been executive producer of many shows, most notably Drew Carey's The Green Screen Show, Mind of Mencia on Comedy Central, the critically acclaimed show with George Lopez, Lopez Tonight, and the Emmy-winning Wayne Brady Show. The story's about to tell about the ups and downs of the business shook me, and I know it's going to have an impact on you. Please welcome Robert Morton. I handled it by not taking it personally, even though it changed the course of my entire life. It was it was very interesting time because I was I always looked at myself as being defined by being the producer of that show, uh, having a great job in New York City, to really be you know between Saturday Night Live and Letterman, that was the top of the heap in, in New York at the time. It was you know pre John Stewart and pre Colbert. It was you know we were the only two games in town, and there was a great heady feeling about that. So. Getting fired from that position, your life changes as well as your professional life. And, you know, something I was ready for, for a life change. You know, I was in my 40s, I was still a bachelor. You know, I always wanted kids. And it, it kind of forces you because that's a lifestyle, a job like that. And those are young men's jobs. Uh, you have to commit completely to those. And I think that's part of the problem with a lot of the shows that are on the air now that. The hosts don't commit completely. The the producers all want to get home and have real lives. Well, you know, the writers on the Letterman show would be there all night. The bookers, we'd uh, drop a guest would drop out at the last minute. They'd be hustling all over town, you know, at, at all hours to, to, to fill those holes. Uh, it's a lifestyle. It becomes a lifestyle. So that day, who tells you? Letterman. So Letterman, he calls you into his office. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he says, we want to make a change. You know, and what, can't argue the point. It, it was, it wasn't confrontational. It wasn't, it was, I was, I was stunned by the punch, obviously. You look back and you go, all right, I look at that same picture of Muhammad Ali standing over Sonny Liston. Sonny Liston might have been stunned to shit, but, you know, something afterwards he thought, you know, maybe I didn't train the way I should have trained. Maybe I was a little old. Maybe this, that. You know, you see all the writing on the wall after you get knocked out. I still love watching him. There was never a day that I stopped respecting him as, as, as a, a comedian and a host. He was always the gold standard. And never, you know, getting fired from that show never, never shook my respect for him as a performer. After that day, when you walked out of that office, how many times have you spoken to him since? Never. Not a word. I often think about the moment if I ever did. But no, not really. I haven't talked to him at all. No. I think I, I viewed where I was at, at, at a higher level than I might have been. You know, you, you often lose sight of the fact that the show is about him, not about me. The reason that show is successful has nothing to do with anything I did. It's all him. It's all his vision. It's all, you know, it all came came from the, the top. I don't usually have musical artists on that often, but when I do, it's it tends to make a huge impact, and this one was no exception. This is a guy who started as a child actor, booking all of his first roles, and then later on, in his late teens and early 20s, 
he was cast as the lead singer and drummer of a fictional television show about a fictional band. And somehow, some way, in a very short time, he went from pounding the pavement to auditioning to performing in front of huge sold-out arenas and selling more records at times than the Beatles. This is the lead singer of the iconic group, The Monkees. Please welcome Mickey Dolenz. That's the guy that plays guitar with his teeth. I recognized him. And sure enough, he starts playing with his teeth. Uh, Great act, great act. But it was an act. And I knew it was an act. And he knew it was an act. And The Who was an act. And The Monkees was an act. And I thought, wow, that'd be a great opening act. Very theatrical. I love the music. It was like, you know, because I'm a 23, 24-year-old guy, you know. I'm not listening to monkey music. I'm listening to the Stones and the Beatles, you know. That was who I was listening to. My fans were listening to the stuff I was doing. But I'm into, you know, I was listening to Wes Montgomery and, and classical music or... You know, I liked uh, Mose Allison and, and I liked, uh, you know, uh, Otis Redding and, and stuff. So I'm thinking, wow, it's a great theatrical act. And, I, and we were looking for an opening act at the time. And I mentioned it to the producers and they called his people and they called their people and all the people talked together. Somebody must have thought it was a good idea because sure enough, a few months later, he's, he's the opening act. But it was it was weird. I do this bit in my show uh, uh, frequently where I describe all this and then I say, and so Jimi Hendrix would come out and go, this is what it's like, Jimi Hendrix opening for the monkeys. And the band starts playing Purple Haze. And I start singing, Purple Haze, come in my brain. Little things that don't mean the same. Acting funny, and I don't know why. Excuse me. We want Davy. We want the monkeys. Mickey, Davy. And that's, that's what happened. It was very, it was very embarrassing. Because we're in the wings watching this incredible talent, you know. My next guest is one of the greatest comedians of our generation. When Johnny Carson invited him to make his national television appearance on The Tonight Show 30 years ago, the rest was history. He became a household name and started selling out 2,500 to 3,000-seat arenas in a tour with Roseanne. He guest starred on hit shows like Grace Under Fire, Touched by an Angel, and Chicago Hope while starring in memorable films like Coming to America opposite Eddie Murphy and the classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Later on in his career, he focused his energies on Saturday morning animated series, which he created entitled Life with Louie, based on his own childhood life with his father, which won three Humanitas Prizes in a row for writing children's animated series making him the only three-time recipient of the award. It also earned him a Genesis Award, and most significantly, it garnered two Emmy Awards. He's also an author of two best-selling books, including the New York Times bestseller Dear Dad, Letters from an Adult Child. He's one of the most versatile and successful comedians working today, and 
I know you're going to like him a lot. He means a lot to me. He means a lot to the comedy community. And the things he has to say about what it takes to get past a little bit of adversity, especially in one of your biggest moments, is so, so valuable. Please welcome Louis Anderson. Sam Kennison completely killed that audience. I mean, they were all like, they couldn't, if it would have been social media at that time, people would have been tweeting, we just saw this guy. So I go, oh my God, Sam's on. That's all over. I'm going to die a dog's death. But I'm a pro and I know how cameras work. It's really important to remember this. You've got to regroup. You cannot measure yourself to Santa or to the devil or to whoever it was. You know, you you can't. You've got to you've got to regain strength. You know, you've got to make, you know, uh yes, the climax happened there, but you've got to get hard again. I'll say it in a in a sexual way. You've got to you've got to get ready because you you are the greatest stand-up comic of all time. Any comic who who goes out there better be thinking they're the greatest stand-up. I want to tell you, you don't have to feel bad about saying that. You better be you better be thinking that. You're going into warfare out there. How'd you regroup? I got away from everybody. I walked outside. It was really cold. I walked outside and I just I was had my suit on. It was all makeup and I just walked around the block a little bit and I said, Ah, oh, this is nothing. This is nothing. You're gonna you got the best you got these jokes. You've been working on them. They're the greatest. Nobody can do what you do. They might like Sam, but they're going to remember you. But you're going into uh, show business warfare, not real warfare, because those are the true heroes out there. Um, but so I walked around the block, and I don't know who was on. I don't know. Everybody did good. I mean, you know, the crowd was there for it to be good. They're on TV, so they were trying to give it it all. And then I just went on, and I just... I had the jokes. I had the family stuff, and it was solid, and everybody had a family. And luckily, there were four people on before me again, you know? And I did it, and I did good. I didn't want, I wanted to have Sam's response, but I knew that was a mistake to go for. You can't have Sam's response. You can't have the response of, you can't have uh, James Brown's response if you're singing a ballad, but your ballad may be just as beautiful, but, but to you somebody can... you're James Brown. So don't worry about it. Cause That's... for somebody you're James Brown, you're Sam Kennison, you're the greatest. My next guest only a few years into his legal career. When the iconic talk show host, Johnny Carson hired him as his personal lawyer manager for a golden period that became the most productive 18 years of his career. In his book, Johnny Carson, which was number one on the New York Times bestseller list and one of the top 10 books of the year in 2013, he outlines his experiences working with what he calls equal parts sounding board, drinking buddy, tennis partner, travel companion, business manager, and all-around trusted confidant. The stories about to tell 
like all of them, is shocking, but wonderful. Please welcome Henry Bushkin. Well, you have to remember this incident was months after the success we enjoyed against NBC. The new contract was done. The production company was formed. So it's a year, maybe, or two after I'm declared his best friend. (laughs) (laughs) And and months after this, uh, as you say, this type of victory that you sort of stand up and cheer. Yeah, we did it. You know, what a great thing. So... It wasn't me who convinced Johnny. It was it was Frank Sinatra who asked Carson to host the inaugural gala for President Reagan. <laughs> and the moment uh, occurred after a series of screw-ups. And finally, the event was over. And we were going to no parties, nothing. We were having a private dinner. The series of screw-ups began with the, with the roster of people performing at the inaugural gala, Carson felt at least he deserved and the public deserved to see first-rate talent at inaugural gala, and he felt Debbie Boone was not such. You know, he thought Rich Little didn't quite fit the bill. Marty Pacetta was the director. Now, Marty Pacetta was a director we hated. They knew one of the conditions was you could not edit his monologue. In this restaurant, Walter Annenberg, who was then U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, was there. There were some senators at this private party and televisions all around to watch the broadcast. You know, senators, ambassadors, whatever. And we're watching, and Johnny, of course, realizes that they fucking edited the monologue. This prick has done this to me again. (laughs) (laughs) And he demands that the television be shut off. (laughs) So everybody's there to watch the thing. We're all there celebrating (laughs) now in mourning, you know, like, like... We're all in a state of shock, you understand, because of this television show that has gone awry. You know, Marty Pacetta has just <laughs> fucked him again, and how dare he, you know, and we're all, we don't know what to say. You know, this is like we're trying, and there's a restaurant full of people, and nobody knows what to say, and all of a sudden, moments into this silence, his wife becomes hysterical. She starts crying at the table. <laughs> What is she crying about? Like, what's happened to her? You know, so Carson, who has little tolerance for anybody other than himself in moments like this, I'm sure you've never met people like that, turns to her and grabs her like, what the fuck is going on? And she then tells this tale of Victoria McMahon actually sitting with Frank's wife in the fourth row, and she was in the seventh, and how embarrassing for her, and how dare Bushkin allow this to happen. And and it was a complete debacle, and I left the next morning, and the, the interesting thing, he says, well, I'm not going home today because the president invited me over to the White House, and we're going to see the president at the White House. So and just, I, uh, just stop. Saying, Hopefully this is going to solve things. And I'm like, maybe you'll feel better. So he was going at Sinatra's invitation to meet the president, and he went. 
And what happened, Henry? He was given a VIP tour of the White House, which he refused to go on and stormed out of the White House. The president called Johnny to apologize for the seating. Could you imagine the president of the United States calling anyone in the world to apologize for where their seats were at some silly event? Because that's what the inaugural is. It's a silly event. You know, it's just parties. And this, I thought, was the end of my relationship with Carson. Seriously. My next guest was the first CEO and chairman of a major talent and literary agency in Hollywood that I ever was able to interview. He is the CEO and chairman of Paradigm, and they represent some of the most unbelievable Oscar and Emmy-winning artists, including Julie Bowen, Adrian Brody, Lawrence Fishburne, Mark Harmon, Andy Garcia, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. But in music... His company also is at the highest levels, including representation of the Dave Matthews Band, Coldplay, Toby Keith, Fergie, Fish, Black Eyed Peas, Imagine Dragons, and Aerosmith, along with some of the most brilliant international superstar DJs in the world, like Tiesto, Skrillex, and Zed. The stories about to tell about a bone-crushing situation he had with one of his clients, Cuba Gooding Jr. shows why great men and women are not defined by what happens and how they react when things are going well. They're defined by how they react and when things aren't going well. I know you're going to like him a lot, Sam Gores. I never really believe in setbacks. I think any time in my life I've had a setback, I just, you know, I'd go to bed that night, I'd stick the setback under the pillow, I'd wake up the next morning and find the opportunity. Uh, so I always, I don't believe in setbacks. I believe that there's always an opportunity through a setback. So what happened is when when Cuba, and I, you know, in a way, almost have him to thank in an odd way for that, when he left... And we were the Gores Fields Agency after Boys in the Hood. I was so devastated. Like, literally, I was, like, ready to cry, right? I was so devastated. I went home. I locked myself up. And I said, I'm only 35 or whatever at the time. And I said, I'm not going to lose clients because we're not a big enough agency. Because at the time, he left and he went to Triad, right, which was an agency that it was a big agency, probably like Paradigm is today. You know, that, you know, big music business, big film and television business and so on. And uh, I was very determined that I don't want to be at this young age in a position to lose out because we're not big enough. So I literally wrote out, you know, um, you know, paragraph by paragraph, an entire plan about how to put together a full-service agency that would include literary and talent and this and that and so on. So uh, so I went then and, uh, you know, make a long story short, it took me over, over a year or so to piece the different people together. And then I, I ended up getting um, uh, three different agencies that were willing. One of them was called STE. And the other one was Robinson, Weintraub, and Gross, and Gores Fields Agency. So after a year of, of really working on this, and I was the youngest of six partners, you know, I put the whole plan together. 
and uh, and uh, that's that was really the beginning of paradigm. So nineteen, you know, early, late nineteen ninety two, early ninety three became paradigm. My next guest is a veteran television producer and high level creative executive who recently joined the prestigious independent production company Big Beach Films, who are responsible for such movies as Sunshine Cleaning, Our Idiot Brother, and the Academy Award nominated Little Miss Sunshine. The reason why they tapped him as a television executive was probably because of his great work as a vice president of development and production for IFC, where he spent four and a half years. And he shepherded the breakout critically acclaimed hit series, which I love and most all of you love as well, entitled Portlandia. I know you're going to like this guy a lot, and his emotional story of his life is just something that moves me every time I hear it and the fact that he talked about it and had the courage to be interviewed about it and most notably to agree to share it with the world will help millions and millions of people and I am honored that I got to interview him and that he got to tell his story. Please welcome Dan Pasternak. This is maybe a bit more personal than, you know, this forum might um, warrant, but I, I think maybe it is important to say I, I was actually suicidal. I was at a very, very dark place because I had felt that I had failed at this point in my life. And I had a newly adopted kid and I would go into my daughter's bedroom at night and I would watch her sleep until the feeling passed because I had to force myself to consciously um, embrace the understanding that I was responsible for this life that my wife and I brought from Bogota, Colombia into the States. And it's like, I can't do this. I can't take her out of those circumstances and then deprive her of a father that she's never going to get to know. And I did two things, two things that saved my life. Uh, the first thing was I went back to stand up after 16 years, never having been on a stage in 16 years after I'd stopped doing it, because I really stopped doing it pretty much after I got out of college. And it was cathartic because I was doing stand up in Atlanta. There's no show business in Atlanta. People who were doing stand up were doing stand up to do stand up. You know what I mean? And it was a very pure creative experience for me. And I helped. It helped me to awaken, reawaken everything that I felt when I was 11 years old and 12 years old and 13 years old and, and got me back in touch with that part of myself, which in the stress and in the um, dejection of being in a city where I really didn't know anybody and uh, feeling like here I am living in a house, you know, that is worth six figures less than I paid for because the real estate market had just cratered simultaneous with Turner pulling the plug on Super Deluxe. And um, I had to find that, that, that joy again, that positivity, that drive again. And the other thing that I did was I determined out of my basement in Atlanta, well, I, I got, I got to go back out there and sell a show, you know, um, 
Robin Harris, who was a great comedian, uh, no longer with us. Um, who some people might remember, he was in the movie Do the Right Thing. He used to have a bit uh, about how people would complain about the job situation. Job situation's terrible, terrible. Job situation's terrible out there. But they'd sit on their couch smoking weed, you know, complaining like that, like they expected there to be a knock at the door, like knock, knock, knock. Who is it? Job. <laughs> and uh, you know, I always thought about that bit when I thought about it's like okay you know you just gotta get back out there you gotta do something you gotta make it happen so i started you know schlepping to la to pitch tv shows and my friend eric schaefer with whom i had done the show starved um and i got back together and we pitched the show that not coincidentally was about people who were survivors of suicide attempts called gravity we pitched the show to stars and um, fortunately for me, Stars ordered 10 episodes of the show. My next guest I've known probably my whole career. He is a force now in reality television and president and founder of 10 by 10 Entertainment, a production company that produces television, film, and alternative media. He's best known as the creator and executive producer of the mega-hit series America's Next Top Model, now in its 22nd cycle and airing in more than 150 territories. Considered one of the godfathers of reality television, he launched one of the very first reality series to appear on network television back in 2000 with Making the Band. His other TV productions are The CW's The Pussycat Dolls Presents, Girlicious, VH1's The White Rapper Show, A&E's The Love Shack, starring Shaquille O'Neal, NASCAR and BET's Changing Lanes, and MTV's WWE Tough Enough. In addition to television, this man produced the major motion picture Invincible, a film based on a true-life story starring Mark Wahlberg. He is presently producing a new film for Fox, in which David O. Russell is attached to direct, which will star Jennifer Lawrence and Robert De Niro. Please welcome my guest today, Ken Mock. There was a Chris Rock incident that almost ended my career at the Cosby Show before it even began. So I'll tell you this because it's a funny story. So Chris Rock at the time, this was back in 89, Rock was nobody. He had just come out onto the scene as a stand-up. He had done one movie. He had done a cameo in this movie called I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker. But we knew him on the, co the, the comedy circuit because he was like the hot, he was like getting really hot on the comedy circuit. People were stealing his material, and, and we all knew it was very blue material, and he, you know, but he was brilliant. And so what happened was one tape night, Rock revered Cosby, and he snuck into the studio. Like nobody knows who Chris Rock is. He sneaks into the studio. And I'm looking over, and I see there's Chris Rock. And I'm like, talk, talk to the other PAs. I'm like, that's Chris Rock. That's Chris Rock. He's like this great comedian. He's this young, hot comedian. And it so happened that night at tape night, the warm-up comedian, I think it was like Sinbad or somebody, got sick. We had no warm-up person. So the AP, Nancy Haas, comes to me. is going around going, oh Nancy Haas, I work with on Whitney. Yeah, so, she, so Nancy producer. Haas is like freaking out. There's no warm-up audience, the warm-up comedian. And so... And the thing you have to know about the Cosby show is they bus in church people, okay? This, it's like a G-rated show. It's all like elderly and young kids from the church, and, you know, they come in. And, and she's like, what are we going to do about a warm-up comedian? I said, there's, there's this guy, Chris Rockover. He's really, really great. She goes, does he work clean? 
And so I said, let me go check. And I go to Chris Rock. I said, I know who you are. You're Chris Rock. He's like, yeah. I said, would you like to do some warm up tonight? And he's like, yeah, I want, yeah, I want to do some warm up. I want to do some warm up. I said, but Chris, you got to do clean material. Like this is church groups here. Can you do clean? Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do clean material. I'll do clean. Don't worry, I'll do clean material. <laughs> so I go to Nancy. I'm like, okay, he's going to do, he says he's going to do clean material. She's like, all right, let's, let's try him out. So they trot him out on stage. I'm standing right next to Nancy Haas. Chris Rock's first joke. <laughs> He goes, so I'm walking down the street. Some woman comes up to me and says, honey, for 50 bucks, I'll do anything you want. He said, bitch, paint my house. (laughs) And so you look at the audience and it's like dead silence. And like their mouths are open up. His second joke is like, Miles Davis. Miles Davis is black. Miles Davis is so black, he can go to a funeral buck naked. <laughs> like, you could hear a pin drop in the audience. Nancy Haas looks at me like she's going to fucking kill me. She walks out, grabs Chris Reich by my arm, yanks him off the stage. And I almost got my ass fired. I came this close. And she's like, I'm going to fucking fire you, blah, blah, blah. You're in so much trouble. Luckily, I get to keep my job. Four or five years ago, I run into Chris Rock at this industry party. He doesn't know who the fuck I am. So I go up to Chris. I say, hey, Chris, let me ask you something. Do you remember this incident? It was like 20-something years ago. He goes, yeah, I tell him the whole story. And I said, you almost got me fired. You almost killed my career before it started. And he looks at me. He goes, yeah, Ken, well, I guess both our careers kind of worked out, didn't it? (laughs) (laughs) My next guest is a wonderful, wonderful man and one of the most talented stand-up comedians that you'll ever see. He's a guy who's multi-talented. He started as an MTV DJ. He started as an MTV VJ where he changed the face of television with his amazing interviews of everybody from Kurt Cobain to Tupac. He was the first guest comedian on the unbelievably successful show Deaf Comedy Jam and he appeared with Bernie Mac, Martin Lawrence and Adele Gibbons where he notoriously coined the phrase which is still used today booty call he's had three specials for Showtime two in the past two years and is a film star who segued into movies seamlessly, starring in great movies like Love Jones, How to Be a Player, Love Stinks, The Brothers, and an unbelievable dramatic turn on Any Given Sunday. He was also the host of the Emmy-nominated Last Comic Standing, and recently has been seen in many, many films, and also the star of his own show with Vivica Fox, John Lovett's Tim Meadows, entitled Mr. Box Office. This guy, huggable, lovable, and always holy shit funny. The story you're about to hear after he interviewed Michael Jackson for MTV and what happened after that (laughs) is something that's very, very hard to believe. And here's one of his holy shit moments. Please welcome a good friend, a wonderful person, a guy who I'm honored to represent, Bill Bellamy. Oh, here we go. So i never forget this. I'm on the phone. I'm talking to this female, and at the time, you know, just vibing with her, and I get, a, you know, a click on the other line. So I call over, and, hi, 
I'm like, hello, who's this? He's like, hi, it's Jen. I'm like, who? Who is this? It's Jen. So I, I hung up, click. <laughs> so I go back to this girl I'm talking to. I was like, some people playing games, my bad. So we still talking. Boop, beeps again. Now it's a guy voice, right? It's uh, Renee at the time. Renee's like, is this Bill Bellamy? I said, yes. He was like, do you know who you just hung up on? I was like, nah, who's this? He's like, this is Renee Elizondo, and you just hung up on Janet Jackson. <laughs> I was like, get the fuck out of here, right? I was like, Janet, Janet? Like Janet Jackson? So she gets on the phone. She says, Bill, did you really hang up? I was like, I thought you was bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so she says, um, we love you so much, and I have an opportunity for you. She was like, um... One of the artists that was opening up for her fell out, and she was like, we would want you to come out and do 10 cities with us. So I said, hell yeah. That was literally one of the best uh, interviews of my life um, because at this time where Beyonce is right now, that's where Janet Jackson was in 92, 93. She was on fire, and she was the most beautiful, sexiest thing moving. She was the first chick I ever seen with a belly piercing. Let's be honest. That wasn't out yet. Chicks wasn't. Chicks, everybody got a little diamond in their belly now, but back then, it was special. I was on the set of her video, If, and um, If I Was Your Girlfriend, What Things I Do To You. She had probably, pound for pound, the hottest backup dancers. And this is the funniest thing about this video. Go to YouTube, put in Bill Bellamy, Janet Jackson interview. You will see me about to faint because we're standing there talking and she lays her head on my chest and I'm about to black out. Cause I, it was not scripted. It was just one of those moments where I'm like, oh my God. And I was saying to myself, Bill, don't, don't faint. Just chill, get some air in your lungs, right? And then this is what really threw me off. She started like, like messing with my nipple, and I like that. So she was doing that, and it was kind of turning me on. I was like, we got to go to commercial because I'm going to need some new slacks. But uh, it was she, she was so cool, and uh, it's, a, it was, it's one of those interviews where everyone can tell I was a fan as well. She put her tongue in my ear. I swear to God. Oh and I was God. just like, she better, somebody better get her off me. <laughs> Because I will. I will address this issue. <laughs> I will address this issue. She keep pushing the envelope here. My next guest is a 13-time Emmy Award-winning executive vice president and studio production head, where he oversaw Fox Sports and the network's news coverage and also was a coordinating producer on Fox's NFL Sunday in charge of all studio programming for the network and entities within the Fox Sports family. He also served as president of the Speed Network while overseeing his duties at Fox Sports. And in 1994, he led Fox NFL Sunday to its 17-year run as America's most watched NFL pregame show. As he liked to say, day one, show one, number one. He's been involved in World Series, All-Star Games, Super Bowl specials, as well as many, many Super Bowl telecasts. I know you're going to like him a lot. It was great having him here. Please welcome Scott Ackerson. 
I was doing weekends, and now I'm doing 6 and 11 o'clock, Monday through Friday, just reps five days a week, getting paid under nine grand uh, at that time. For nine grand a year to do two shows a day, 10 shows a week, 520 shows a year, yes. and you're getting $9,000. I wasn't even getting 9000 I actually owned it up getting... Nine one because I made an agreement that after ninety days, if I was still there, I got a five hundred dollar raise. So anyway, so I was at eight six, and then I got up to nine one. So I was, I was in hog heaven when I got up to nine one. Wow. Um, so anyway, the, the the funny story is in terms of winning people over was there was a guy at the uh, the station uh, in Altoona. And it was just when, you know, you see live trucks and all this stuff. Well, back then, it was just starting that technology. We had gotten a live truck, but we had a green screen, and we didn't have a uh, uh, digital video effects thing, so we couldn't, like, make it a perfect square. But back then, neither did Nightline. And so what I did when I, when I watched Nightline is I noticed that the basically the right third of the screen was flipped and that is the same thing that was say let's say a third of the way there then a sixth of the way it was the same thing except flipped on the same side so what they did is they framed the shot and then they took it so that it wouldn't look like it was kind of weird so we tried that because I wanted to make it look like the anchor was talking to the uh, reporter out in the field. We had a green screen, and so if the camera person framed it right, we could actually take it, and it would look okay. It wouldn't be the greatest thing, but it, we could make it look like the anchor and the reporter were talking to each other. So anyway, we did it a, a couple of, of times, and it worked out well. And as you know, in local news, the head anchor has a lot of power in any local news station. After about three or four times, the program director, and why the program director was had anything to do with news was beyond me, uh, came down and said, hey, I noticed that uh, live shot uh, the other day, you kind of had the had David talking to the reporter. I was like, yeah, we, we kind of set that up, and, you know, it makes it look like they're interconnecting. And he goes, yeah, I, I, I saw that. Um, and I don't really like it. And I go, okay, great. And I moved on. He goes, no, I, I don't think you get it. I don't really like this. I said, no, I heard you. I, I, I got it. He goes, no, I don't want you doing it anymore. And I go, well, why? He goes, cause the talent disappears. The, the anchor disappears from the screen. And I go, well, that's what happens whenever you take a cut of a shot anyway. Uh, I go, look, you know, I was watching, you know, Nightline. And, you know, that's the same technique that Nightline uses. And he goes, how old are you? <laughs> and I go, I'm 23 years old at that particular time. He goes, oh, you know everything. You watch Nightline. You've worked in Chicago, New York. I snapped, as I can do. <laughs> and I said, look, I may be 23 years old, but it doesn't fucking make me wrong because I'm 23 years old and you fucking know so much that you're stuck here in fucking Altoona, Pennsylvania. And I just went off. Obviously, he wasn't happy because this was in the middle of the newsroom 
and the you dressed them you dressed them down eerily, in front of everybody. Yes, got eerily, which I would never recommend to anybody. <laughs> in fact, I learned a big, big lesson at that particular point, which is to never dress anybody down in public in front of everybody, especially uh, people who are your you know superiors or what have you. Um, so they ended up having a five-hour meeting as to whether or not I should be fired or not. Um, fortunately, I was hired by the vice president in terms of overall news production for the entire company and the general manager. So I got called up to the general manager's office, and he's like, what happened? And I told him, and I said, look, I, I'm wrong. You can be wrong. You're not wrong because you're 23 years old. You're wrong because it's a bad idea or whatever. But when you get to the how old are you, just realize that you've won at that point, you know, because they have run out of arguments and it comes down to, well, the only thing I got left in my pocket is that you're how old are you? So at that point, um, we didn't talk much with him after that. Uh, him and I did not really converse or share a lot of stories together uh one of the biggest mistakes i ever made i learned from it though and that's also too is when you do make a mistake you you need to learn from it but don't ever let anybody tell you're wrong just because you're 23 years old my next guest has been hailed as a visionary credited with launching u.s sports television into the modern age presently he's the executive vice president of 20 21st century fox and is the number two manager, Rupert Murdoch. He joined Fox in 93 when News Corp wrested the rights of the NFL and from CBS, and he was charged with building a network-quality sports division, literally from the ground up. His innovative, unique style brought a plethora of groundbreaking new techniques and concepts to the sports world, including the Fox Box, Constant Score, and Time Graphic the NHL Fox track glowing puck, and the creation of the yellow first downline graphic in the NFL. He later became chairman and CEO of Fox Sports Media Group, which included Fox Sports, Fox Sports Network, Speed, Fuel TV, Fox Soccer, and Fox Deportes, the Big Ten Network, and the hugely popular FoxSports.com which has set records for monthly traffic, totaling over 46 million unique users. Throughout the years, he helped Fox expand to the Major League Baseball, NASCAR, Stanley Cup Finals, World Series, Super Bowls, and it was legitimately been crowned and helping Fox to legitimately being crowned America's number one sports network for 14 consecutive years. Please welcome my guest today, David Hill. I didn't, I didn't have the luxury of second guessing. So it was, and the reason I hired Terry Bradshaw was the way he walked. He, he stood up from the desk at CBS and walked across to a screen and he strutted. He had this air of confidence. I own this studio. What I'm gonna say is important. And so it was like Howie Long Howie Long's audition was dreadful, his first one. And, 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 but there was something about the honesty and directness of Howie. And I said to him, after it was done, I said, why did you do it that way? He said, well, well, 
I did it that way because that's what I thought an analyst on television should be. He just quit the 49ers. He virtually still had number 75 <laughs> on the front of, front of his of, of his uniform. And I said, no, there's a thing in television. It's a truth drug. It's that lens. It shows you who you are. Do you just get and do that thing as you are, as, 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 as Howie Long? But and you gave him another chance. Yeah. Why did you give him another because chance? Because I could see there was something there. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, Ed, Ed Gorin went and, and, and talked him into doing it. Ed Gorin, another senior executive. Yeah, uh, and, and, and who's lovely. And um, uh, it, it w- But there was never an opportunity to go, oh, I wonder if we've done the right thing here. My next guest is acknowledged as the greatest living acting guru teacher in the world. He has coached Academy Award winners Helen Hunt in As Good As It Gets, Hillary Swank and Boys Don't Cry and Million Dollar Baby. Additionally, he's worked with a plethora of Oscar and Golden Globe nominated actors, including Jim Carrey in The Majestic, Tobey Maguire in Seabiscuit, Leonardo DiCaprio in The Aviator and The Departed, Blood Diamond Inception and J. Edgar, as well as work with Emmy Award winner Hank Azaria in Tuesdays with Maury. He began his career as an actor on Broadway and then segued into directing before he became a teacher where he won the Obie Award for Best Play, the Drama Desk Award, the Outer Circle Critics Award for Outstanding Solo Performance, a Drama League Honor, and a nomination from the, for the John Gastner Playwriting Award. The story he's about to tell is about one of his other clients, and it really, really is powerful and one that I always remember from all of the podcasts I've done along from all of the podcasts I've done featuring his client, Michael Clark Duncan, and the story of the Green Mile. Please welcome a true holy shit moment man in every sense of the word, Larry Moss. Well, it was hard to cast uh, um John Coffey, because he had to be so huge physically and be right, which was hard to find an actor who had been built up muscularly and that powerful and be 6'7", and all the things that John Coffey had to be. Long story short, Michael came in. He had been kind of a, um, you know, a bit player. He had some roles. He was... uh, Came from Chicago, low socioeconomic background, a lot of problems. We walked into the apartment. Um, He said, um, I don't want to be here. Um, And uh, I said, well, you know, Michael, you are here and sit your ass down because you and I have to work on this script and because you have to get past me to get to the screen test with Tom Hanks. And, um, you know, he was scared and he was mad and he was a big black guy and I was a skinny white guy and (laughs) there was that. And uh, within an hour we were holding hands and crying because I said, I want to know everything about your life because you have to play John Coffey, which is really Jesus Christ, JC, and you have to have the pain of the world in your eyes and the beauty of the world in your eyes and we have to find it. And if we find it, you can get this part. So we worked on it, and he opened his heart up, and it was fantastic. It was beautiful. We worked on all the scenes. We went to the screen test, and Tom Hanks came to the screen test in full costume and was never on screen. He just was there to find the actor to play that part. Long story short, he did a wonderful test. They showed three actors. Um, Michael got the job, and he said to me in my apartment, it's a beautiful thing, he said, I feel okay with you now, Mr. Moss, but how will I ever be able to do this in front of Mr. Hanks? And I said, we'll prepare. 
you'll get on the you'll get on the set, you'll do it. So comes the first day of shooting, I prepare him. He's in the jail cell, they're in a close up. He starts to prepare emotionally, his right cheek starts to shake a little bit and they say Tom um uh starts to say action and uh the camera's just on Michael and um uh he finishes the take and it was so hilarious cuz Tom Hanks walked away and said, Jesus Christ, he's so fucking good. <laughs> and and uh, it was very beautiful. And of course, you know, he, he went on to do a magnificent performance and become famous and, and uh, was proud of himself. And he said to me after the premiere, I said, how do you feel, Michael? He said, you know, Mr. Moss, when I used to get into an elevator, people would back away. Now they shake my hand. My next guest is one of the most respected reality producers in the world. He started his career working with Howard Stern in radio, TV, and pay-per-view specials, and later became a head writer and executive producer for MTV's hit dating show, Singled Out, starring Jenny McCarthy and Chris Hardwick. From MTV, he moved to Fox to produce their first primetime event game show, Big Deal, and then returned to the late-night circle as a producer on the Keenan Ivory Wayne show. Other notable shows that he has produced through his association with Endemol and his company, 51 Minds, were FX's The X Show, Comedy Central's Beat the Geeks, IFC's Ultimate Film Fanatic, GSN's Cram and Extreme Dodgeball, and a run of VH1's most successful shows, including The Surreal Life and all of its spinoffs, My Fair Brady, Megan Wants a Millionaire, Rock of Love, I Love New York, Real Chance of Love, Daisy of Love and Flavo Love. This guy is a really, really, really amazing man, and his story is incredible. But sometimes when things become really, really successful, things happen that you don't expect, and this is one of them. Please welcome my guest, Mark Cronin. You get this enormous check, and you're like, oh, this is awesome what I could like how much fun can I have in my vacation house and I can travel and I can but the truth is that's not the case they you know everybody wants you to keep going and when a when a big company buys a little company they're making a little bet they're saying to the little company you can go on and be a little company yourself and over the next six years you might make x amount of dollars we're going to come in and pay you that x amount of dollars right now and we're then going to collect the money that you're going to make over the next six years. And the bet they're making, or the bet that you're making when you sell the company to this big company, is that they're paying you more than you would have made yourself anyway. And so somebody's going to lose that bet. Either the company is going to pay more money for your company than you'll make back for them, or they're going to make less than than uh, than what you would you're going to make less than what you would have made without them, and so we made that bet. We they they paid for six years of our profits, and paid for them up front, kind of. And uh, it's it's a very strange feeling because now you're all of a sudden you've been you've been an entrepreneur all this time. You've built your companies and you've eaten what you killed. You you made a hit show and you got paid for it. Now your job is to earn back the money that they've paid you. You've already been paid, and now your job is to keep working as hard as you can so that they make money on your on the purchase. And it's like almost like they're relying on your goodwill or your moral stature that you don't want to just freeload off and take their money and run. Like you need to keep churning out money for them so that they can make back the money they gave you. And it's a very weird feeling. 
My next guest is an Emmy award-winning television executive with over 30 years experience in the business. He was the founder and president of Big Ticket Television that created such hit shows as Judge Judy, Judge Joe Brown, Moesha, The Parkers, Jamie Kennedy Experiment, and the acclaimed comedy satire Nightstand with Dick Dietrich, one of my favorites. He also served as president of Spelling Entertainment and was a senior VP at Warner Brothers, overseeing such blockbuster shows as Night Court, Growing Pains, Head of the Class, Spencer for Hire, China Beach, Life Goes On, and Murphy Brown. I know you're going to like this guy a lot and his story, oh, Jesus, about a woman who now makes $45 million a year is truly, truly incredible. Sometimes you just need to be great all the time, and it just puts you in the right place at the right time, and this is no exception. Please welcome my guest, Larry Little. And I got a call from an agent I had never met before, and if I hadn't met him, he wasn't in the business, so to speak. And he was a very small agent, and he said, uh, I have a judge who's just been profiled on 60 Minutes who runs the family court in New York City, and can I bring her in to meet with you? And he brought her in and blew me away. She flew to, to Los Angeles. And as I found out later on, went to everybody in town. Well, I was they, the last guy on the list. I had never done this before. Went to all the logical And they all passed on Well, her. they all liked her. But in the room, I said, I'm ready to roll. I, I said, in the room, I'm ready to roll. And you're going to have to give me an answer tomorrow. So I'm not going to be the stalking horse. And literally the next day, they... And I, and I quantify what that was worth. How much it would cost to make a pilot, to market it. Which is a big financial commitment. And so we... Uh, we uh, next day, we made a deal. A few months later, we shot a pilot. And she had never done it before. And while she, there were moments of the pilot, we sh shot 14 cases, but it was a little uneven. She had never done it before. We had great moments of sound bites, but and 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 I knew she had great potential, but she had never done it. Each of the cases lasted 30 minutes. They had to last 12. We were able to cull together two, broke it down to do a little sizzle reel, presentation reel, and blew us away. And people said, I remember uh, the New York Times interviewed me. How did you know Judge Judy was going to be so successful? And I didn't know. Nobody knows. But what I did know <laughs> is I'd rather fail with her than not give it a shot. And that then becomes, the when you look about admonitions about success and inspiring people to persevere and stuff, the, the best for would-be entrepreneurs, this is more for the, well, you could say actors too, but more for the would-be producers or executives. I had no idea. I've, I've been asked this countless number. How did you know that Judge Judy was going to work? I didn't. But what I did know is I'd rather fail with her than not give it a chance. And in this particular case, I got very lucky. We opened up to a to tiny ratings. So we opened up to a 1.4 rating. By the way, when we reached our peak, we were 11.8 in daytime. My next guest is an amazing executive. She is the president of TNT, TBS Productions and Business Operations. And she oversees production and business affairs for TNT, TBS, TCM, True TV, and the Cartoon Network Originals. She was the lead dealmaker behind the agreement that brought Conan O'Brien's late night show to TBS and arranged deals resulting in several hit TNT and TBS original series, including The Closer, Men of a Certain Age, Leverage, Dark Blue, My Boys, and Lopez Tonight. Please welcome a very impactful person and somebody I always love being around, Sandra Dewey. One of the huge adjustments I had when I moved to LA was there. There was a, there was a premium, um, on being a fair person. Like you didn't, 
it wasn't like how much could I get you didn't want to get more than was your share that you would have been embarrassed by that that was sort of the culture from where where I grew up you would never try to cut in front of someone in line you know people paid attention to those sort of things and people who did that they, they were bad people you know good people were the ones that said you know after you and and let's treat everyone fairly so when I came to LA and there was this sort of you know, massive humanity. And people were like, it, it was kind of a badge of honor if you could figure out how to beat the movie line or whatever. You could get to the Hollywood Bowl and get your car out before everyone else. You know, people, that was a big victory. But it was it was a shock to my consciousness. I, I lived in a state of kind of uncomfortableness about that. And I always remember, this is, this is kind of funny, um, in my early years here, that movie Seven came out with Brad Pitt. And someone must have invited me to go to, you know, there was a I don't know if it was the premiere or a screening of it or something. And there was a group of us, we were lined up outside. There was like a little, you know, velvet rope and we were all in this line and, and they were starting to let people in and up comes this person who in my mind I have decided was an agent just based on the suit and the gate, um, but comes kind of marching up and just steps literally right in front of me in line. And I was so flabbergasted by the boldness of it, you know, and I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, excuse me, you know, is there a reason why you think you're better than all these people who've been waiting in line? And he said to me, many. My next guest has emerged as one of the most versatile, unique voices in comedy and as a two-time New York Times best-selling author. He sells out theaters nationwide as a stand-up comedian, was a regular contributor on Tonight Show with Jay Leno, and guest on The Late Show with David Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel Live, Chelsea Lately, Inside Amy Schumer, and Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. On the radio, he's one of the stars of the popular Opie radio show. Now he does a nightly music show obsessed on Ozzy's Boneyard and hosts his own weekly advice show. He also has appeared as an actor in numerous TV series and feature films, has had three one-hour comedy specials, four albums, and created the anti-social comedy tour franchise. Please welcome one of my friends and one of the best comedians you'll ever see, Jim Norton. First joke I ever did on stage was a terrible joke. It was something about scientists had discovered a black hole, and then it turned out it was just Oprah Winfrey Lay and Spread Eagle. That was the first joke I ever told on stage. It was a giant Oprah Winfrey vagina joke, and it didn't get a laugh. It got nothing. Um, and that was the weird part for me was hearing my voice projected over a microphone and not hearing anything back. You know, your friends, anything you say, they laugh at you have that relationship. I didn't have that with an audience. So I didn't understand that you have to establish something, be comfortable. You told me actually when I was in 1997, I was seven years in at that point or 96, I used to psych myself out before gigs. They're going to fucking hate me. I had to do that. And you were, we were in the comic strip and you said one time, one day, you're not going to need that. You're just going to walk into a room and be funny. You told me that, and I was like, that was one thing I always remembered, that I wouldn't need to get myself into a headspace of being negative. That was one piece of advice I remembered uh, for a long time, is you never have to do anything to get yourself ready to be funny. You know, you just got to go on stage and be funny. So that was, very, that was probably the most important thing you taught me, was that one moment, because that's one thing. It's the only bit of advice I can ever remember a manager or agent giving me that I actually remember specifically when I got it and where I got it. That was very helpful because it saved me a lot of agony and a lot of self-doubt, which I still have anyway, but nowhere near what it used to be. 
You know, um, I'm not psyched out. The crowd's going to hate me. If they do, they do. My next guest is really impactful. You're going to love this guy a lot. He, believe it or not, is a guy who's produced television, film, and was also the president of BET. How many people can say that? Incredible, right? He started off at Harvard University where he worked on a 10-minute film that he believed was special. It eventually went on to become one of the highest grossing films of its time. And we're talking about House Party with the franchise that had a second and third incarnation as well. He also produced and or directed other movies, including Posse, Bay Bay's Kids, The Great White Hype, Joe's Apartment, Ride, The Ladies' Man, Serving Sarah, Robin Harris, Live from the Comedy Act Theater, and the mother load, which he's about to talk about right now, Django Unchained. Please welcome a guy you're going to love, Reggie Hudlin. We're at an Oscar party uh, at the at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel, and I see Quentin. He goes, "So, uh, you know, and he, you know, and we get into the debate about slave movies." And he, you know, he's like, you know, oh, you didn't hurt you didn't like Seven Seven. I was like, well, no, I hey, how do you even know I didn't like that movie? But no, I didn't like that movie. So we start going on back and forth. And I say, to me, there's only one great movie about slavery, and it's called Spartacus. And until you make a movie like that about the American experience, I'm not interested. So, like, mm. <laughs> so we go, we argue some more. But what about it? I'm like, you know, he was naming other films, and I said, look, those movies are very well intended, right? But none of them satisfy me personally as much as Fred Williamson and the legend of nigger Charlie. Now that's a movie. And he was like, I have nothing to say to that. I go, I know. I'm like, Oh God, I finally won one with this guy. He's tough. <laughs> He's very smart, very tasteful. So that was it. That was in the conversation till 15 years later. And you know, we, we get together. He's, you know, I'm very lucky. I get to see his rough cuts or, you know, new scripts. When he goes, hey, man, just finished a new script. Come by the house. I'm having a little party. Great. Come by. Um, and, like, you know, a gang of people there finally winds down, like, into the night. It's me, the RZA, Quentin, and Warren Beatty. <laughs> Quentin gives me this phone book of a script. Poof. And he goes, you planted the seed. This is the tree. I'm like, what? And he reminds me of this conversation we had had 15 years ago about slave movies. And I'm like, are you serious? And he goes, yeah, well, just read it. Tell me what you think. So I go home. I'm reading it. He's blowing up my phone. Hey, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? So I call him back. I love it. <laughs> really? I love it. It's so great. And he goes, do you have any notes? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so we talk for a half hour, and I'm talking about, you know, I, you know, he goes, oh, those are good notes. I go, oh, well, thank you, man. I'm so happy for you. So glad to know you're going back to work. Can't wait to see the movie. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. We're doing this together. And at this point, I'm like, nah, you're just gassing me up. Like, no, no, no. I talked to Harvey Weinstein. I talked to Stacey Sher. Everybody wants you on board. I'm like, then you realize this is happening. And there's a, there's a, pl uh, this is happening. You're the last person to find out you're, you're, you're part in the plan. Well, the plan is moving forward unless you stop it, right? So I go, well, look, let's go. So a week later, we're in Louisiana scouting locations. My next guest is incredible. Wow, such a powerful guy. He's a multiple Emmy award-winning 35-year entertainment veteran <clears throat> who started his career who I work with on a show called Mr. Box Office with Bill Bellamy, John Lovitz, and Vivica Fox. 
but he started his career when he's 14 years old when he got his first break when stand-up comedian Jimmy Walker saw his stand-up act and was so impressed that he invited him to join his writing group, which included young comedians Jay Leno and David Letterman. The story he's about to tell is when he was 18 years old when he made his television debut on The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson after spending a summer on the NBC lot. After spending many summers on the NBC lot as his mom worked at the company. This story I know you're going to love. Please welcome Byron Allen. I would go to NBC with her. And it was there that I fell in love with comedy and with television. Because it was there at NBC. At this point, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a young kid. I'm 12, 13 years old. I'm, um, you know, this is in the 70s, in the uh, early to mid-70s. And it was there that I would go from studio to studio to studio and watch how they created and made television. So I would watch them tape The Tonight Show. I would watch Johnny Carson pull into his parking lot, his parking space, every day at 2 o'clock. And he would turn the corner like clockwork onto that lot at 2 o'clock. And he would get out of his whatever white Corvette or whatever car he had, and he would get out with his brown paper bag lunch. And he would bounce up to his office, and he would say, how you doing, kid? Because <laughs> I'd always happen to be near his parking space, and I always just kind of wait for two o'clock. And I swear I would just turn my head, and sure enough, there's my hero. So I ended up doing the show May 17th, 1979. It's always something like a second birthday. And here's the thing that was so special I remember standing behind the curtain, waiting for the, the music to come out of the commercial break. And I remember thinking, the next five minutes will change the lives of my mother and I forever. I'm standing behind the curtain. And, and clearly, I'm in that studio now hundreds of times. And I'm talking to one of the guys backstage who's a buddy because I'm hanging out. I know all the guys. And all of a sudden, he stops talking. And he's like, like he's shaking almost. And, he's, <laughs> uh, and he points behind me. And it's Johnny Carson because it's the commercial break and it's time for me to come on. And Johnny says, don't worry, kid, you're going to kill. At that moment, I could have made 500 chairs laugh. It didn't matter. My next guest brought an energy to the podcast unlike anybody else. He is a leader of men and women. And he's a young man who garners the respect of everybody he works with. And where he works is a place that is a hotbed of some of the greatest comedic talent and short films and sketches uh, and comedy pieces that you'll ever see anywhere in the world. Where he is the president of production for Funny or Die, where he works with Will Ferrell, Adam McKay, and the whole team. I know you're going to like him a lot. His stories were wonderful. Here's one of them. Please welcome Mike Farah. My very first gig was working security at movie premieres. Uh, I, I met a girl in my building who was a manager of it's still the the main company sms that's at every premiere she yeah. was like a manager there 
and I had a suit because I had like, you know, gone that, that corporate gig, that internship. And she's like, Oh, do you want to come be a security guard? I'll give you 50 bucks. I was like, fuck yeah. I want to go work secure. Like I've never been to a movie premiere. And so, and I still see some of the people when I go to premieres, I still see some of the people that I worked with when I was a security guard. And so I did that, like I did that a ton. I had a bunch of unpaid internships. I was actually fired from an unpaid internship. And what's even worse is it was at New Regency, which is right outside your window, practically. Uh, and I had to enroll in Santa Monica Community College just to take the unpaid internship that I was subsequently fired from after three weeks. But I still passed the class, which was a, a nice thing because I wrote uh, my final paper about being fired from my unpaid internship. <laughs> I was also an uh, overnight food expediter at the Standard Hotel for over two years on Sunset. So I worked in the rest. I, I've always felt I've always worked in restaurants. If you can't work in a, the restaurant industry, you shouldn't work in, the, in Hollywood because it's essentially all a service industry. So by the time I got UTA, uh, gone to UTA, which was a whole other story how that happened, I got there because a, a good friend of mine, Yoni Brenner, who's a great writer, was staying on my sofa and he knew Peter Benedict, who's one of the founders of UTA and is a big Michigan supporter. And Yoni was just like, oh, yeah, I heard about this party that at Peter's house before the Michigan Film Department. And I was just like, Yoni, I got to go to that party because that's how I could get a job. And we went. We weren't invited, but we were able to get in. These nice ladies kind of took uh, mercy on us and let us in. And uh, I spoke to Peter Benedict for probably 90 seconds at that at his party. And uh, the next day I woke up with a, a job offer uh, and that was on my 25th birthday. And uh, th he literally changed my life with that one phone call. My next guest just happens to be the Little League coach of my son's baseball teams, which is kind of odd when you have a guy coaching your kids who is a 17-year veteran of Major League Baseball, a guy who's made all-star teams, and a guy who Big Poppy dedicated the world championship in 2007 to him after the Red Sox won the World Series, a guy who early on in his career knew from the moment he started in high school that he wanted to be a professional baseball player a guy who all through his career said the things he was going to do and made them happen. The motivation that this guy has is unique. I never had a professional athlete on the show before, and I haven't had one since. But what he has to say is very, very powerful. Please welcome Royce Clayton. For my uncle, yeah, my play uncle, because he got a lot of uncles and aunts uh -huh. in the community. But uh, I remember there was something like a foul ball goes up over the third baseline. I'm playing short and I go busting towards the dugout and I kind of scale the fence and just grab it, bring it back. And after the game, he goes, son, you're going to play in the big leagues one day. I'll never forget that. I became a student. I studied every single thing. And there's a certain mentality. And I tell people all the, all the time, I played with a lot of talented guys growing up that had a lot of ability, but to be a pro is is a word pro it's a professional so you go about your work in the right way you live your life in the right way there's very few people that can cheat the system and, and become a pro so I, I just i just put that in perspective people try to break them down to understanding it's not like okay oh, he's fast he's this he's that there's a whole mentality behind being a pro that people that aren't pros don't have it 
and it's that dedication, that work ethic, and the understanding of what it is to be a pro. Uh, just understanding the dedication and work ethic of repetitions, going after it. After practice, doing more practice. Uh, every wake a moment, dreaming about that and doing extra things I would understand would make me a better player. I enjoyed it, so it wasn't work. Well, imitate greatness. I mean, that was the big. More I talk about the big moral of the stories that we talked about today was about me imitating everything Ozzy did on and off the field professionally. I became that player, replaced that player, and to me went on. And in the business world, I try to imitate greatness. Uh, I've, you know, been persistent in following up with those types of people because I want to be successful and want to imitate the true recipe for that success. So I just try to surround myself with positive people, imitate greatness, and just want a little bit of that to rub off on me. My next guest always makes me happy. She is incredibly talented and an award-winning film and television actress, writer, director, and producer. She began her career, believe it or not, as a stand-up comedian. In New York, she was once asked to dub screams for The Last Temptation of Christ, leading to a long collaboration with director Martin Scorsese, during which she appeared in several of his films, including Goodfellas and Cape Fear. She has appeared in numerous television shows and guest and recurring roles, including The Larry Sanders Show, Frasier, Drew Carey Show, Grey's Anatomy, and Entourage. She was nominated for an Emmy for a performance on HBO's Six Feet Under and is a regular on the hit NBC series Welcome to Sweden. Her web series, Easy to Assemble, has won six Webby Awards and has been viewed over 40 million times. Please welcome my friend, and an incredibly talented person, somebody who I loved working with on the first show I ever executive produced, Action. I know you're going to love this woman. Please welcome Ileana Douglas. There was somebody in the company that was working for this director named Frank Perry, and Frank Perry, was his office was next to Peggy Siegel, publicist, very famous publicist. She had an assistant, and that assistant was actually going to work for Marty, and they recommended me because they said, oh, she's she's got like showbiz, you know, she, she's very personable, and she's got like an encyclopedic knowledge of show business, which I did at the time. I sort of knew everybody. And so I got a job, you know, working there in the office, and it was an amazing job working behind the scenes. We did films like uh, The Untouchables, Beverly Hills Cop 2, What's funny about about uh, Marty is that he worked in our building, and I uh, he was very you know an elusive figure. Nobody even knew I was an actress. I mean, I was like for all intents and purposes, I I answered the phone, and write press kits and helped out actors. You if you were, I mean, it was unheard of to try to like push your own agenda as an actress, but. This girl who worked for Marty, they they had, you know, they were auditioning people for Last Temptation of Christ. And in a, again, a ridiculous circa, as if I were in MGM move, I had these pictures taken of me. This was the era of a designer named Kenzo, where it was like everything was wrapped in a headscarf. So I had these headshots taken of me, wrapped in a turban, 
And I sent them over there to the casting person. I said, look at how good I look in a turban. I should be in Last Temptation of Christ. Of course, nothing happened with it, you know. But on my resume, because I had nothing on my resume, I thought it would be funny under special skills. I wrote blood-curdling screams (laughs) and great legs, milking a goat. And everything else ever done in the world ever. That was like my little. I was like, I had one thing going for me. I was like, maybe, maybe if they go to the bottom, they're like, well, it's kind of funny. Sure enough, I'm working for Peggy. Frank Perry one day, they had literally forgotten to cast a small part in a movie called Hello Again. Came running in. You're an actress, right? I was like, yes, uh, I'm an actress who answers the phone. He goes, no, I mean, do you, you know, I, we forgot to cast this part in a movie. You want to go and sh- yell at Shelley Long? I was like, uh, yeah, can I, Peggy? Can I? And then what's even more bizarre, he was like, do you have a monologue? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I do have a monologue. So I went to his office, did a monologue. Next thing I know, he's like, I'm taking her, Peggy. Got me out of the office. Went downtown, Dwayne Street, putting me in clothes. Hand me a stroller. There's your lines. Go yell at her. I'm long this long. Very nice to meet you. You know, like... I'm in the, I'm like, okay, that's over. I can cut, bring her back up. I got my SAG car. I was like, this is unbelievable. They had to Taft Hartley me, as they call it. But that is how I became a Screen Actors Guild member, yelling at Shelley Long. This story made it around the building. They were like, I heard this crazy Frank Perry literally was like, you, you're going to be in my movie. And I was like, well, it wasn't that. But it was kind of like a, like a story, like a publicist had made it up. But for the first time, people had this awareness that, like oh you're funny you're an actress you're an actress so i sent my resume over to marty's assistant and she says it says here on your special skills blood curdling scream do you really have a blood curdling scream and i was like oh yeah i really do and she goes all right i'm gonna i'm gonna send you down because they need to dub a scream for barbara hershey in last temptation of christ they need to dub a scream and you're going to go down at 5 o'clock today and scream for Martin Scorsese. Well, I can't think of a better way to end this episode than to share something with you that's a little unusual because I did not record it on Industry Standard. I recorded it on Jay Moore's podcast, More Stories, the last time I was on, and it was the last story I told before the episode ended. And I've gotten a tremendous amount of feedback and so many letters and emails about this. I thought it would only be proper to close with it. It's a different kind of story than I normally tell. It's a different kind of tone that's normally on the podcast. But I think you'll find that it's something that you'll take with you as you ride off in the sunset after finishing off this second anniversary episode. So, I guess, here goes me. I I was in there with your dogs in the radio station the other day, and you were talking about something, why you don't let your dogs out or whatever. And I just, uh, my, one of my son's dogs was killed by a coyote. Um, it's a two very nights ago. Los Angeles problem. And like nobody in Texas is going. I have a fenced in yard. Uh, oh, really? And, and I don't know what happened, but went out to go to the bathroom, ran to the fence. Every dog in the neighborhood crazy. Uh, killed. 
and and but I want to share this is that I had more uh, respect for you uh, for a specific reason I'm going to tell you about. You're getting emotional. I'm getting very emotional because I was teaching a comedy class. That's why I'm here today. I taught a teach a comedy class for about 100 kids in, in my son's school, and the final comedy classes were on Monday and Tuesday. The dog was killed on Sunday night. So I had them stay over their mom's place, and I waited two two days two days before I could tell them and I had to tell them that their dog was killed and the ang noticed that the dog's not in the house no because I had oh, to stay at, at their mom. mom's sorry, sorry, sorry. so the anxiety that I felt in my stomach for those two days knowing what, what was going to happen how I had to tell them and 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 because you're dealing with kids 10 years old they don't understand you know it's like they understand but they haven't been taught how to deal with adversity and so I'm just going to go on with the story. So I go and I take them to a park with their mom and I tell them and I start crying really hard as I'm telling them. I've never seen you cry. And I'm going to share something. My mom passed away uh, four months ago. My mom always joked, when I die, you're not going to cry. And I hadn't cried for five months after my mom died. My mom, the most important person in my life, uh, in terms of my personal life. But I hadn't cried. Hadn't cried a month later, a week later, two months later. I remember you confiding this in me. Yeah. And you, th you asked me, what's wrong with me? That's right. And so here an event happens where I'm faced with my children. And I tell them, and I'm crying, and I found out that that adversity that I was facing, I wondered if I was handling it right because I was showing my emotion. And something unbelievable happened. They both came to me when they were crying and hugged me and they said, Daddy, please stop crying. It's not your fault. Don't blame yourself. It happens, Daddy. And so that moment I had so much anxiety about these little 10 year old souls they took a tough situation they reversed it and they came to me they became the parent <laughs> they became the parent and then I came back to being a parent and I told this story about adversity and I'm going to share it with you with the stealing with anybody out there that's listening who goes through something that doesn't really understand why they go through it. But I think you crying about the dog with your kids was all the pent-up stuff with your mom, obviously, right? You're totally right. Okay. It took an event to get everything out. You needed a trigger. And so as I calmed down and became sort of, sort of like a, more of a parent with them, and I was talking to them, something channeled through me and I thought about the adversity and I thought about the anxiety you used to feel at Saturday Night Live and I think of the anxiety that people have who are suffering from mental illness or anxiety disorders I felt this for two days I was paralyzed there's people out there that are feeling this every day or on Saturday Night Live every day of work and I never fully understood what you went through because I, when you said I'm, I'm have anxiety, I no panic or panic or whatever it was that relating to that and anxiety. It's like waking up and your ceiling is weighted 
And at any moment of your day, your ceiling's going to fall on top of you. From the moment you open your eyes, not if, when. When, and that, when you go outside, when you go to a restaurant, subway, bus, car, shower. I remember my biggest panic attack. I was showering. And I looked at a fucking towel on a rack. And it was like a purple towel. And I'm like, that towel's purple. In my mind, like, it was so inconsequential. Where I got on my hands and knees and I was vomiting the panic. It's insane what triggers it. And that's why I was, I was thinking about you so strongly because I thought to myself, I have so much respect for Jay and what he went through. I have so much respect for all the people out there going through Because two days and I was ready to buy a handgun. And, and to think that somebody goes through their whole life or a whole working experience to, to, to try to figure out how to stop it. And so I'm in front of my kids and they're crying and I say, listen, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you a story that I think will help you understand when these things happen, when bad things happen. I said, look, and you alluded to it earlier in the podcast. I said, about 25 years ago, as you know, I was married before mommy. She was 23 years old. I was 25. She died after eight months. I didn't know she was going to die. It just happened, just like your dog. You don't know when it's going to happen. You're saying hello to the person, goodbye to the person. You're hugging them. You go off and do what you do, and then you come back, and it's over. And I said, I spent a lot of time mourning. I spent a lot of time grieving. I spent a lot of time crying. I spent a lot of time in bed. And I didn't understand why this happened to me. I didn't understand what it was, the purpose. You're saying this to 10-year-olds. 10-year-olds. I said, I looked up into the heavens, whoever I believed in, and said, why? Why, why did you do this to her? Why did you do this to me? What is the reason for this? And today I said, you're looking at this about your dog saying, why? Why did this happen? And I'm going to tell you why. Because I said, right now, about 25 years later, I'm staring into the eyes of my children who wouldn't be here if my 23-year-old wife hadn't been taken from this world. The world has a plan, and you're going to figure out what the reason is, not now, but later, and you'll understand why you went through the adversity. You'll understand why you went through the things with Bert and Joe Rogan and some of these people. A lot of you out there who are listening to the podcast understand why you lost somebody or why you got fired from a job or why something bad happened. It's not evident now, but it will be evident later. And for me, I told them, I'm looking in your eyes and I wouldn't be here with you. I wouldn't have the life I have. I wouldn't have the love I have between you if the world hadn't taken her. And it's a horrible thing, but it happened. And I'm sure she's looking down right now saying, I'm so happy and grateful that you have a beautiful life. Well, that wraps up the Industry Standard Second Anniversary show featuring the greatest inspirational and holy shit moments from our two years doing Industry Standard. I had to do a part two. After the part one, there was no way I was going to leave you guys without sharing these additional stories with you. So I really hope you enjoyed yourself as much as I did. 
I'm very, very grateful for everything and all of your support. Thank you so much, and I really, truly look forward to the third year. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.